<coughs> this evening, I want to continue our investigations, our inquiries into some of the basic areas of this thought as applied to daily life. But before that, I want to talk just very briefly, just very briefly, about something some of you will know, but again, worth reminding you of. Um, and these are considered to be problems in meditation, and they're called five hindrances. <laughs> um, probably over the last five days, or however many days we've been here, four days, you've probably encountered most of them. Um, let me just really briefly outline them for you, because they're worth actually noting them when they arise. And the first one is sensual desire. <laughs> That's everything from kind of erotic thoughts to wanting a nice cup of tea, <laughs> you know. And grasping after it. Yeah, so it's a long, big spectrum of sensual desire. I actually say that not only are the hindrances to do with meditation, but to do with daily life, because you'll see them arise in daily life as well, all the time. So sensual desire, as we're going to see later on, and hopefully tonight, if not tomorrow night, uh, in our explorations, is a major part of what the Buddha perceives to be a problem. Not sensuality as such, not the sensual world, but sensual gratification, sensual grasping after it seems to be the problem that the Buddha is talking about. And so what we tend to get, of course, is sensual thoughts coming up, and they tend to be the rather nice ones, so we go off with them (laughs) and get a nice little bit of gratification and buzz from them, and that's not really what it's about. So staying alert to sensual desire and the rising of sensual desire is one of the, obviously, um, ways of overcoming the hindrances. The second one is ill will or aversion. As you can see, uh, that's the dislike bit. Uh, The stuff about yourself often that arises, that you don't wish to examine, um, you want to have no part of, want to distance yourself from as quickly as possible. It can be actually associated even with people around you with irritation, all kinds of stuff arising which in a sense are linked to the notion of ill will um, or sometimes it's actually translated as hatred. Aversion is probably the better translation out of them all. It's what we are averse to and that includes fears as they arise because fear is about aversion, something I don't want to happen. Um, It's also about the irritations that arise, the sounds outside, the sounds inside, the meditation hall to which one says, I don't want to know about that, that shouldn't be here, you know, that kind of stuff. A very funny story about this, there's a classic story in Tibetan Buddhism about uh, the monk who leaves monasteries. Have you ever been to a Tibetan monastery in incredibly noisy places? Um, When I lived in the Tibetan monastery and was a monk in one, um, I had kind of myriads of monks walking up and down, all reciting something different out loud. (laughs) generally till about gone midnight. <laughs> yeah, so for about four years I had earplugs <laughs> every night. So they're not quiet places. And the story is he decided to take himself off to the, into the, you know, the heights of the Himalaya to try and escape the monastery um, and then started to complain because the crows were making a noise. <laughs> yeah, so there is no quiet spot. Uh, there's always something we're going to find ourselves averse to or irritated by. Well, I gave you the unholy trinity the other night of greed, hatred, and delusion, which is at the kind of hub of all of our problems. Well, now we have the dynamic duo, which is sloth and torpor. (laughs) Because sloth and torpor, and particularly, I always say, post-lunch, is something that often creeps up on us quite quickly. Um, And remember what I was saying tonight, this is not what it is about. The whole practice is staying alert 
sloth and torpor. This is actually kind of drowsiness and laziness um, that occurs, which obviously results often in sleep um, in meditation practice. And the whole purpose of meditation is to stay alert and awake and as receptive and responsive as possible, and it's not to drop off to sleep. Um, I've often joked about this, actually in this room sometimes, and saying actually sometimes in long meditation courses, I often see two types of meditators, as somebody knows what I'm going to say, which I always call the swoopers and the dive bombers. And the swoopers, you know, the dive bombers are actually quite inelegant. They kind of go like this. <laughs> the swoopers are much more elegant creatures. They try to d- yeah, disguise it. <laughs> Those are generally the early morning sessions, by the way. <laughs> but the whole purpose of meditation, as I say, is to stay alert, awake, and attentive, and not to fall asleep. And actually, remember this kind of sloth and torpor is not just literal, which is what I'm talking about at the moment, but it's also metaphorical, the way we can just go to sleep in daily life, just cut off, switch off, and go straight back into automatic habit patterns as well. So sloth and torpor are there all the time, both literally and metaphorically, in our practice and in our lives. You know, it is the laziness that actually comes with not applying enough effort to what we do. And effort is very important. In the Eightfold Path, and I'm sorry to give you all these lists, you know, Buddhists are number fetishists, you know, they get caught up in numbers. Um, in the Eightfold Path, there's something called Samavayama, which actually is right effort or appropriate effort. You need to make the appropriate effort, for example, the balanced effort, not too much, because that's something I've been emphasizing to you in this particular practice. Don't force the mind. This is not kind of, kind of st- I mean, I see this sometimes with people who kind of go <laughs> like this, screwing up their faces and trying to concentrate, and that's not what it's about either. Um, so it's getting a balanced effort between the kind of screwing up your face type effort and also the dropping off and you know, becoming a swooper or a dive bomb or whatever. You know, so it's, it's the balanced effort between. And this is really indicative of what the Buddha is always talking about because he's always talking about a middle way. A middle way between too little effort and too much effort. You know, so it's actually finding that balanced effort. Then we have something I think besets us a lot in daily life and particularly again in, in spiritual practice and meditative practice and this is excitement and depression. And they come as a pair. And you can see, really, they are kind of polar opposites in the sense of the way that the mind swings from elation to depression. You know, in other words, you think you're getting somewhere. Oh, I've got a calm mind. No, I haven't. <laughs> 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 it goes almost like that, you know, the way it can swing. Because you think you're getting somewhere and you grasp after the getting somewhere. And... Um, and then, of course, it drops off and you find yourself back into the chaosmos again of our own experience. I had this very forcibly brought home again to, this is a, a monk actually, um, who was meditating in Switzerland. There used to be a Tibetan Buddhist centre in Switzerland. And he said he was meditating in Switzerland. He said he was sitting there and he'd been sitting there for hours and suddenly he said he started getting these flashing lights in front of his eyes and he thought, gosh, any moment the big one's about to occur. <laughs> Any moment is going to happen. It's like flashing and flashing. Okay, I'm going to be patient. I'm going to wait. I know this is, you know, this is kind of awakening coming on me. To cut a long story short, this went on for hours like this. And eventually he goes and opens his eye. 
and there's an electrical storm, a silent electrical storm going on in the mountains, <laughs> which he hadn't obviously perceived. Uh, and of course, then he went, ooh, <laughs> like this, and fell flat because of it. And in a way, this is what we see. We build ourselves up, we get so excited. We get excited, for example, about coming on retreat. You know, I don't know if any of you had that coming on retreat. And then it goes, ugh. You know, after two days, three days, four days, you know, when it's all actually quite a lot of effort uh, to be sitting so many hours a day, to be actually trying to concentrate the mind, it's warm, you know, all these things. So immediately the mind then drops to the other extreme. So it's this kind of almost manic depression that we all suffer from, particularly in relation to spiritual practice. We build something up, we don't get it, that's the ideal, and then it kind of falls flat on, on us. And this is actually something I think we ought to be very, very aware of in meditative practice, is actually too much grasping after ideals. There is only the practice. There is all that, all there, that is all there is. Once we introduce ideals into it about what we want, we will miss what is actually happening, what is actually going on. So we build up our ideal, and in a sense we kind of build ourselves up anyway, um, by simply having titles to the various types of meditation. You know, like we're doing metta, for example, this week. Um, and sometimes you actually get the very opposite of metta arising in the course of doing this meditation. You might get irritability, you might get aversion arising, you might get all sorts of stuff going up, but it has very little to do with metta. Um, or does it? I mean, I'll leave that as a question mark at the moment. Then we have calming meditation. And the first thing I always say to people, you know, when you're doing calming meditation, the first thing you have insight into is the lack of it, <laughs> rather than actually having calm at all. You know, you kind of have this window into your mind and you just see this kind of, you know, everything going extremely fast. Um, monkey mind, as the Tibetans always refer to it, you know, jumping around from you know, branch to branch, swinging around, having a good time. Um, but this is what the mind is doing. It's jumping all over the place. So actually, the moment we grasp after calm, we miss the inside of what is actually happening and actually can become very deflated by it. Then we have insight. You know, again, we can set ourselves up for a fall. Um, all I'm saying is if we grasp too much after these titles, insight, calming, meta, loving kindness, we, in a sense, if we grasp after them too much, we create an ideal out of them, we miss what is actually going on. And so the actual practice is really to be attentive to what is actually happening. The focus is metta. The focus is insight. The focus is calm. Now, if you manage to stay with the focus of the meditation, all well and good. But most of the time, of course, we don't. We drift away. We get caught up. And all the sorts of stuff I've always re- already referred to. And the problem is, and again, I'm referring to something I said the other night, we label this as good and bad. Yeah. Good and bad meditation. So if you actually have a degree of calm, you know, you're not so distracted, you're not wiggling around on your cushion for so long, you, know, you tend to think that's a good meditation. Whereas the meditation sometimes which is really difficult, when you're having to really confront the difficult material, we label bad. Actually, it's possibly the opposite way around in many cases. You know, if we're actually going to use those appellations, which I tend to want to drop off anyway, um, is sometimes you're actually gaining more insight, more understanding in the difficult time you're having. Because it's actually confronting the resistance, it's confronting the habit patterns that are coming up. Now, lest I kind of selling you the idea that we always ought to be in chaos, that's not the case. But actually going through the difficulty will actually get eventually to the calm, the insight and the meta that we talk about. But if you grasp after them in terms of an ideal, you will miss or overlook 
what is actually going on. It's the death of what actually is. You know, so it's important to stay with what actually is going on. This is not religious idealism. Let's, let's make this very clear. The Buddha did not deal in religious idealisms. He dealt in realisms about what is actually happening. He was always bringing his students, his monks, the lay people he taught, back to the realities of what was actually happening for them. Yeah. This is very, very empirical, which is why I referred to on the first night to the idea of the authority of your own experience, not somebody else's. So even the things that are said, the things that you read, they're always to be tested against your own experience and see whether it holds true. Then finally, there is something which, uh, in a way, can undo the whole of spiritual practice, which is doubt. And this is really what I call ultimate scepticism. It's not kind of, you know, just the doubt which encourages you to inquire. It's the doubt which undermines everything. You know, what is the purpose of doing this? This is a complete and utter waste of time. I'm sure this must have occurred to some some of you, even in the last few days. You know, what am I doing sitting here? You know. Doesn't it look ridiculous? <laughs> All this sort of stuff comes up. Um, these are the doubts which, in a sense, can undermine the whole practice, take you away. And so, in a sense, it's to be noted when doubt arises, and like all of the others, to be, in a sense, let go of. So those are the five hindrances that we, I think, will encounter again and again and again and again in daily life and ordinary practice. And they're ones to, to look out for. You can actually even note them as they arise in ordinary life and, and certainly in your meditative practice um, because they are there and you will see them there with enough attentiveness. So keep that attention. Keep it really alive because it's that attentiveness which you are hopefully going to take out into daily life. It's the quality of attention. It's the quality and the depth of that attention and that focus that we can bring to daily life which will enrich it which will stop us from falling back in the habit patterns, hopefully. Um, and I do say hopefully, because you know, it does require quite a bit of effort. It will certainly enable you to catch out some of the habit patterns that we engage in. Some of the things I've kind of discoursed about you know, quite a lot over the last couple of nights. So it's encouraging us to really begin to see them, to see them clearly, so that we get out of patterns of simple reactivity into patterns of activity. And I would even drop the word patterns, just into activity. Because actually most of our lives are spent, again, generalisation I know, but please bear with me, Uh, most of our lives are spent in reactivity. You know, when you hear that sound outside, when you hear the tractors or whatever it is, it might arise in you, oh, don't like that, shouldn't be happening here. Um, That's simple reactivity. That's all it is. It's just sound. That's all. That's all it is. It's just sound. But it's associated, because of the associative tendencies, it becomes irritation. Um, it becomes aversion to something. You know, so we're into a cycle of reactivity. There is no freedom in reactivity. It really is like Pavlov's dogs. You know, do you want to be Pavlov's dog? <laughs> you know, in other words... Here's the stimulus and here's the response. You know, here's the stimulus for you wanting it and there you are salivating for it. You, know, you want that thing. Um, are you trying to avoid it? Simple avoidance. That's the aversion. So we're kind of, in most of our mechanisms, we're in a sort of push-pull mechanism. The push-pull between attraction and aversion. 
attraction and repulsion. And most of our lives are governed by like, dislike. Yeah. And then there is this category, which is actually the category of ignorance, of couldn't care less. Yeah. <laughs> you know, don't even see it. Yeah, and that really is the neither like nor dislike category of Vedana, which I talked about a little bit last night in terms of the five khandhas, in terms of the five aggregates that go to make up you know, what we call the psychophysical personality of the individual. Okay, that's kind of just a little bit to bring us back into the, into the arena of what's going on in meditation and hopefully to um, remind you about things that many of you will know anyway. But let's come back to some of the investigations, some of the inquiries that we've been looking at over the last few nights or so. And tonight, the one I particularly want to raise, and it's one um, that I always bring to the forefront, I must admit, and it's the notion, not the notion, the actuality of impermanence. Um, because that is written into everything that we are doing. It's come up all the time, even as I've been talking over the last few nights or so. Impermanence is what the world is for us. The world, in a sense, is evanescent. Yeah? It's rising and falling, it's arising and falling, and nothing will remain the same. And this was not a new thought, even in the Buddha's time. But he made it one of the actual main aspects of his teaching, that all things are impermanent. There is actually a very classic sutta um, in the Diga Nikaya, which is the long discourse of the Buddha, which is called the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, which is actually about the Buddha's death. And yeah, he's even saying to his monks, chastising some of his monks, and particularly his close attendant, Ananda, who's kind of weeping and wailing because the Buddha's on the way out, he's dying. And he said, haven't I told you all the time, <laughs> you know, all compounded phenomena drop apart, you know, and I am no different. You know, he compares himself to being a worn-out, rusty old cart. You know, that's the way he compares himself. He's kind of worn out, and the body's worn out, and, and you know, it's, it's, you know, it's dropping away. Life is dropping away from him. Yet he's, even then, he's having to remind his disciples, his, his monks and his close attendant, that that is the nature of all things. That all things, all compounded phenomena, and human beings are nothing less than a compounded phenomena, compounded through causes and conditions, that that will fall apart. No matter how much we try to shore it up, no matter how much we try to to eat healthily, live healthily, we will still get sick and eventually we will die. The Tibetans have a very good phrase for this, which is, one thing is absolutely certain and one thing is absolutely uncertain. The certainty is death, the uncertainty is when. And that is not meant to be a source of morbid brooding <laughs> over it. You know, and then all of the reflections on death in Buddhism are not meant to be a source of morbid brooding because you know, there's not any point to that. There's no point to it. The whole point about bringing death into the equation of being a major thing is as basically an impetus to get on with the job. That is why it's there. It's central to most Buddhist concerns. You know, we are beings towards death. And from the moment we you know, come out of the womb, we are beings towards death. You know, and in terms of spiritual practice, which is obviously and the tackling of the problem of dukkha in our lives, then the Buddha is saying, don't put it off till tomorrow. You know, there might not be tomorrow. And I think all of us are procrastinators, aren't we? 
You know, we all prevaricate. Oh, I'll just do that bit of meditation tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's okay today. You know, it's interesting, in Zen, some Zen monasteries, every night they go to bed, they turn their bowls upside down just in case they die in the night. You know, and somebody else has to use it. Yeah. It's kind of a reminder, a constant reminder. In Tibetan Buddhism, there are many things which they use which are constant reminders um, to that, that one is going to die, that we are going to die. And really, it's actually taking that on board existentially, actually really owning the fact that we are mortal, that we are not immortal. We have locutions in our language where we kind of put it off. You know, I hear so many people, even, even now, after all these years having spoken about impermanence and death and that, and I hear so many people guess, of course I know one's going to die. You know, one? <laughs> you know, it's kind of saying, well, one is going to die, but not this one. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's a way of putting it off. It's a way of not actually confronting what is going to actually happen to us. But I say this is not, and do really remember this, it's not a source of morbid brooding. It is there to encourage us to practice, to do what is important at this moment in time, to get on with life. Now, one can bewail the fact you're going to die. You, know, you can kind of kick and scream and say, well, this is what makes life meaningless. And I kind of indicated to you the other night. And of course, the death is actually, in a way, for us, what makes our lives meaningful. If we had an infinite amount of time, why would we choose to do anything? Why do this as opposed to that? You know, it's because, in a way, even if it's not fully acknowledged, that we know that we are mortal, that we have a limited span of time, that makes us choose this over that. Now, you might make the wrong choice, but you have to make a choice. And in a sense, that's the position that we're catapulted into by our own mortality, of having to make a choice about it. And there's no point in bewailing this fact. There's no point in bewailing the fact that we are mortal. Buddhism, unlike <clears throat> a lot of traditional religions, doesn't have the notion of some kind of heaven that one pops off to. Yeah. When he talks about Nibbana, the Buddha talks about Nibbana or Nirvana, as you probably know it in the Sanskrit form, most people know the Sanskrit form more. When he talks about Nirvana, then we're usually talking about something within this life. Yeah. And actually, that's how it's referred to often in the text, is Nibbana within life. And then there's something called Paranibbana, which is something that occurs after death. Now, the one the Buddha actually has quite a bit to say about, the other he says nothing about at all. Yeah, he said it's not even worth you knowing about. You know, get on with trying to get Nibbana in this life. You know, forget about what, in a sense, happens after death in terms of the Paranibbana, because you know, it's something you wouldn't even understand, is what he's actually saying. And even when we have the notion of rebirth in Buddhist thought, then it's not of an identical person. And I was trying to make this clear. This is why it's rebirth, not reincarnation. And we have to make a distinction there between the two. Reincarnation is usually the you know, taking up of the body of the self-same thing. That is not Buddhist thought. As you heard me say last night in terms of the five khandhas, then you, what you've got in a sense is not identity through it, but continuity. And just to lay that out a little bit more explicitly... Who I am today depends on who I was yesterday and who I was 
the week before, who I was the year before, and the year before that, and the year before that, all the way back to my birth. And perhaps, if one takes a traditional Buddhist account, before that as well. So what, is we, what we have is the notion of continuity and not identity. And the Buddha actually illustrates this with a simile, which is of one candle flame being passed to another candle flame you know, in a continuous chain. And it's not the self-same thing that's coming through. And actually, when asked about what is reborn, the Buddha replies extremely um, lucidly, in scare quotes, it's not the same, but it's not different either. <laughs> so it's not the self-same thing, but it's not completely and utterly different either. So something is going to go on. Now, we see this in terms of our life, even if we only restrict it to you know, our, this life that we know that something is going to go on. There is kind of what I always refer to as unfinished business that's going on. And that unfinished business propels us into states we don't often want to be in. You know, I think I'm leading a reasonably good life. You know, I'm doing things well now, but something catches up with me from my past. You know, the unfinished business from the past that I haven't quite dealt with. And all they're really saying in terms of rebirth, if one wants to kind of adhere to that idea is that that might go on past the parameters of this life. That is all. That the unfinished business. If there is residue, it will continue. Now, the whole purpose about Buddhist thought is to bring an end to rebirth. It's an end to this constant, if you want to put it in, in this life, to this constant psychological sense of being reborn into the similar kinds of hells, the similar realms of desires, the similar egotisms, the animalistic behavior, and all the things I mentioned the other night when I told you that little story about myself when I first encountered the six realms. You know, that is what you're bringing an end to. An end to being reborn just constantly into those psychological conditions. You know, in Buddhism, I might just add this for those who are interested, in Buddhism, the psychological condition is also a cosmological condition. It's also a place as well as you know, a state of mind. So there's no actual differentiation between psychology and cosmology, particularly in this whole series of literature called the Abhidhamma in Buddhist thought. So there's no point in bewailing this fact. All we have to do, in a sense, is get on with it. Do what we have to do. I want to read you something, and it's um, something I read last year, actually, because I did a whole course here, that, in fact, a bit later than this. We did a course just on living with impermanence, and it's something that I kind of just encountered just before we started the course. And I sort of shared it with everybody, and it's actually by somebody who was a television, um, somebody who was a television introducer in Sweden, um, called Karen, Karen, sorry, Ulla Karen Lindquist. And she contracted a form of motor neuron disease, um, which was terminal. And this is the account of her last days, virtually up until her death. I think it finished in December of 2003, and she died in March 2004. So it's pretty well almost up until the end. And it's really talking about her attitudes, and I found these quite inspiring. Nothing to do with Buddhism. Just You can find this in, in kind of the human spirit to deal with these things. And in many ways... In Buddhism, we can learn a lot from things like this. And this is what she says, and I'll just read you two extracts from it. She says, I'm going to die of ALS, which is this particular form of motor neuron disease, if nothing unpredictable happens. There are two roads I can take. One is to lie down here and be bitter and wait. The other is to make something worthwhile of the misfortune. See it in a positive light, however banal that sounds. 
My road is the second. I have to live in the immediate present. There is no bright future for me. There is only the bright present. Children live like that. Only for the present. Nothing coming afterwards. Therefore I laugh like a child uncontrollably. The whole of my adult life I have thought it will be all right in the end. I have to do this first and it will be all right. But this way of thinking is no longer possible. The strange thing is that nowadays that I'm terminally ill, I feel moments of great joy such as I've hardly ever felt in my life before. Happiness has never been a constant for me, but it's becoming one now. That's why I laugh. And if it has anything to do with bulbar paralysis, then it's a blessing that comes with ALS. And there's just one other extract which I just wanted to read to you, which actually was with her child, um, who you know, she's writing, and she's obviously becoming weaker and weaker. As the, as the, this is just a little bit further on from the bit I've just read you. And this is her son, called Gustav, and he comes and stands by her desk. He says, Gustav comes and stands by my desk. Do you write all the time, Mummy? It takes such a long time now, I reply. I only write with two fingers now. Mummy, I'm a miniature human being. What? You're big and I'm little. No, Gustav, you're big. You have your whole life in front of you, the future. Now it's me, me who's getting smaller and smaller. Mummy, every second is a life, he says gently. What did you say? Every second is a life. Where have you heard that? Nowhere, I just made it up. And he carries on. You have hundreds of thousands of lives left, Mummy. Every second is a life, I echo. I thought that was a wonderful way, really, of, in a sense, embracing our mortality. Now, obviously, it's extreme in her case because she is terminally ill and she knows she's terminally ill. ill. But in a sense, we all are. And that is the whole purpose of it. To embrace what we know now to live this now as fully as we can, with as much attention, with, you know, not a Buddhist word actually, but with as much passion as we can. You know, to fill this moment with, hopefully, the attention that we can bring, the love that we can bring, the compassion that we can bring in that moment. You know, and I think it's very, very well indicated, very well demonstrated, I should say, very well demonstrated in this idea that every moment is alive. Every second is alive. And we let them go. We let them go so easily, don't we? You know, we kind of put off what we know what we have to do. Um, we prevaricate. We do all the things that you know, kind of say that we've got an infinite amount of time stretching out in front of us. And we don't. And that's the point about it. We don't embrace what is actually happening now. No matter how difficult that might be, and there's, no, there's kind of no contract again to say that life isn't going to be difficult, but we don't even embrace the difficulties. We try to avoid them rather than deal with them. And this is very much the message of the Buddha, to to live the life now with as much attention as we can bring into this now moment. Because otherwise it might not come again. In fact, let's put it even more starkly than that, every moment you're experiencing is unrepeatable. It will not return again. Whether it's one you label good or one you label bad, it will not return again. We don't embrace that, in a sense, unrepeatability of every moment that we live. Uh, In fact, we kind of almost 
I have a figure almost of having something written on a blackboard and we kind of wipe it away in the possibility of a holiday. You know, we kind of say, you know, I'm going to get rid of that. You know, I'm kind of looking forward to my holiday and suddenly the whole of the rest of life becomes erased because of it. Because the only life is elsewhere. As yes. a quote from Rimbaud, the French poet. You know, life is elsewhere. It's not here now. You know, and it's to move away from this idea that life is elsewhere. You know, the grass is always greener somewhere else. It's not. It's actually to come into this now moment and to, in a sense, lift ourselves up in this now moment no matter what it is that's occurring. If it's you know, the depths of depression, we can lift ourselves up in it. We can be you know, integrated and whole again not fragmented. We fragment ourselves. We fragment ourselves over the dimensions of time. We fragment ourselves over a past, a present and a future with no integration to it whatsoever. And this is to bring ourselves into wholeness and integration. And if you hear those words wholeness and integration that can occur in the moment, that is healing. I'm not saying it gets over physical disease, but it's healing in terms of the psyche. And this is what the Buddha's chief concern with. Its chief concern is with healing the psyche of us because our psyches are productive of nibbana or our psyches are productive of its opposite, sangsaraing, you know, as I keep putting forward to you. Sangsaraing is this perpetual drive, it's founded on um, something the Buddha calls three fires. I've given you, I call them the unholy trinity. The fire of greed, the fire of hatred, and the fire of delusion. And these are the three fires which are consuming the world, he says. In one very stark piece, which is in the the Vinaya, which is the discipline code of the monks, he actually says, everything is burning. Absolutely everything is burning. Everything is burning with the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion. But you can quench the flames. And actually, that is the literal meaning of Nibbana. It means to put out the fire. You know, the fires of greed, hatred and delusion. It's not extinction, as so many thought it was and when they first came to this word Nibbana or Nirvana and thought it meant the extinction of the individual. No, it had a very specific meaning. It meant the extinction of the perpetuation of samsara through three fires. It means literally, its literal etymological meaning of the word nirvana means gone out. It's gone out. It's an intransitive verb in Sanskrit and Pali. So it means gone out. That which sustains sangsaric life has gone out completely and utterly. The very word Buddha tells you a lot about this. I mean, again, I don't want to do too much with this because this is not kind of a course in philology. But it's actually interesting when you actually look at these words in the original languages because they have so much meaning within them. The word Buddha actually means where everything unwholesome has ceased to exist and everything wholesome has grown. That's what the literal meaning of it is, of that word. So everything unwholesome has ceased to exist. Everything wholesome has grown. And that is why it's termed that the Buddha is in Nirvana or Nirvana. But, let's make this very clear, and I know I've emphasised this already, but I really do have to make this very clear. Nirvana is not some other place. It's not Buddhist heaven. It's not a place you can pop off to. 
Um, later traditions have that. It's not in the early texts. Later, have the traditions, uh, later traditions have the idea of what's called pure lands, which one can visit, which are supposedly inhabited by Buddhism, by Buddhas, I should say. Um, but these are very, very, actually, a long way from what the Buddha was actually saying. I'm not saying they're distortions, they're just developments of an idea, but it's not actually at the forefront of what the Buddha is saying. Nibbana is here, now, or it is sangsara here, now. But hear them as verbs, because Nibbana is a way of being in this world which is utterly transformed from the way that we normally are. You know, so if everything unwholesome, well, everything unwholesome arises from greed, hatred, and delusion. If all that has ceased, then what is left? Everything that is wholesome. And everything arises out of six roots, psychologically. We have the, six, the three unwholesome roots and we have the three wholesome roots. And they're actually diametrically opposed. So instead of greed, we have generosity. Instead of hatred or aversion, aversion is still a better translation, instead of aversion, we have friendliness, compassion, and all things that we're attempting to do over this week. And instead of delusion, you have understanding. Not wisdom, it's not actually wisdom in the original language, it's understanding or insight into the way things are. And so what it's saying is, is that somebody who's achieved that state is actually operating in the world solely from those three bases. From generosity, kindness and compassion, and insight and understanding. And so it's a way of being in the world. Now, I'm only saying this, in a sense, is because when we talk about death, and we talk about impermanence, and all that, really what he's saying, the word is saying, is you too can be like this. That's his promissory note. He says, I can't do it for you. You've got to do it for yourself, as I keep reiterating. But it is possible to nibbana. It is possible for you to nibbana in life if you really, really dedicate yourself to it. But we almost come back to where we keep coming round in circles. It's still, still sangsara, isn't it? We come round in circles. To back where I was last night, you know, saying it's got to be of importance to you to do that, to want to have that motivation. Now whether one can achieve it or not, yeah. so what? Yeah, I, mean, I think it's, there is a motivational impetus to get us to actually practice. The fact that you can actually, even in small amounts of consistent practice, see things changing. Why? Because all things change. You, know, you can see it changing sometimes, sometimes, not always, sometimes for the better. Yeah. You can see that you can cope a little bit better with what you know, Shakespeare calls the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. You know, sometimes we can deal with those just a little bit better, just, just a teeny bit, you know, we go into a situation where normally we'd be inflamed with anger and perhaps there's only a modicum of irritation instead of out-and-out aggressive anger there. That is what I could term progress if one wants to measure it in terms of progress. All that comes, out, comes about by having the impetus to do it now, to be actually involved in the practice now. In a way, again, I'm not moving much from much I said last night. The exciting thing is doing it, being involved in the journey, you know, being involved in that path. It's not a route march from unawakened to awakened. It's a journey. It's a way-making. 
And this is the way I generally describe it. The Buddha describes it as a magga, a way, you know, a wayfaring. And we can get the picture almost of kind of going across a terrain. Sometimes we make mistakes. Sometimes we go down blind alleys. Sometimes you find yourself kind of in, in a thicket somewhere. Uh, and you know you've suddenly lost the path. And so in that way-making, we're kind of way-making our way through the spiritual difficulties that we have in life. Life is not easy. Yeah? I don't hesitate to say that. Life is not easy. But we can journey through it. We can journey through it in this way-making process, which doesn't constantly have to keep making dukkha out of it. Yeah? Sometimes dukkha will arise. No doubt yeah, it will do, because we're in sangsara. That is the defining characteristic of sangsaric existence, is that dukkha keeps arising. And but it passes away. Too. And then another dukkha arises. <laughs> you know, so it's that rising, passing away. However, in this training of the mind that we're engaging in, and that's the way it is seen as a training of the mind. It's not a training to overcome physical sickness, death, or any of these things. It's a training of the mind which makes the journeying of the life through life much lighter, much happier much more content, much, much more peaceful. And I'm sure I don't need to tell you that. That's often what we need. We have turmoil, we have fragmentation, we have dukkhas arising all over the place in terms of fears and anxieties and oh, the colour on the wall isn't right and things like that. You know, we have all of these forms of dukkha arising, um, yet with the training of the mind we can see them for what they are and hopefully begin to let go and move into the real journey of life. Because when we cling to Dukkha, as I've suggested we often do, we miss out on the journey. We're stuck. We're stuck actually in a complex, which I'll explore in much more detail with you tomorrow night, which is the complex of craving and attachment. Craving and attachment is a complex in which we're embedded. Now, the word attachment, again, I don't want this to be a philological lesson, but the word attachment in Pali means to fuel. If you think of the image of the fire, when we're attached and involved in this attachment craving complex, what we're doing is stoking the fires. This is what the Buddha does. He uses language in a way that it actually, in a sense, metaphorically refers to the image he's used. The image of the three fires of greed, hatred and delusion. When we're caught in that complex of craving and attachment, then we're just keeping putting wood on the fire. We're just keeping it burning. That's all. Yeah. Where we don't have to. To let go is to cease to fuel. And if you cease to fuel, using again the imagery that Buddha is using, the fire will go out. The problem we have at the moment is, of course, we're embedded in that craving attachment complex. So therefore we continue to feed the fire. Yeah. We're there stoking it up. Yeah. <laughs> Let's have a good blaze. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Keep us warm in winter. Yeah. But no, joking aside, this is what we're doing. When we're involved in that, when we're craving, and remember craving itself is, has this idea of thirst. Thirst that can't be quenched. So it has no terminal point. So I can go on with my sensual desires, ceaselessly craving my sensual, sensual pleasures. Um, but all I'm doing, in a sense, is just stocking, you know, putting more wood on the fire. 
That's all I'm doing. And even when I get attached to it, that's exactly what I'm doing. So this is what we're overcoming. This is, in a sense, what the awareness, this is what the insight is bringing, an awareness of how we begin to stoke up the fires. Now, I'll talk about this much more tomorrow night. I'll kind of cease here, I think. I'll talk about this much more tomorrow night and talking a little bit more about dependent origination and how these aspects occur within dependent origination. But I just want to say one final thing, really, and give you an image, an image I've used so many times in this room, and some of you will definitely have heard this before. But it's a very important image because it's the image of the monkey trap. Now, monkey traps are things that are often used in Africa and sometimes in Asia as well, obviously to catch monkeys. And what it is, generally, is, is something which is shaped a bit like the, you know, the bell here, a bit like a bowl, and it's got a long, thin neck, and it kind of screws down or fits down onto it. And in the bottom of the bowl is something the monkey wants, like a piece of fruit, um, or an apple, or a banana, or something like that. And it's got a long, long, thin neck. So what the monkey does, it goes, and grabs hold of the piece of fruit, and then goes, I can't let go. Yeah. I can't get out. I can't get away. What he's trapped is by his own clenched fist. All a monkey has to do is let go, and it gets free again. That is ours. We're in the monkey trap. We're actually caught and bound very often by what we possess, what we crave, and certainly what we're attached to. We're caught by it. Tibetans are very aware of this. It's There's a lovely piece in Tibetan language. When you go and buy anything, you don't actually own it. Um, even the word to buy in colloquial Tibetan means to pay a ransom fee. So things are only ransomed to you. <laughs> or actually, Tibetans say this quite literally because they come along and take your possessions away whenever they feel like it. You know, I used to come back to my room in the monastery and half my books would be gone. <laughs> Because <laughs> yeah. they're not actually yours. They've just been ransomed to you for a period of time. Uh, unfortunately, we don't see things like that. We think they're ours. But of course, coming back to the theme that I started off with, with this investigation with you, this inquiry, death will take it all away anyway. There's none of it you can take with you. you know, even your deepest attachments, psychological attachments, certainly your possessions, none of it, as we all know. I'm telling you a truism here. I'm not telling you anything which you haven't probably thought about yourself. But we don't live that way. We don't live as if everything is going to be stripped away. I talked a little bit last night about you know, identities, professions, jobs, roles. All of those will go. No matter how deeply you're attached to them, to your position in society, your role, your power, all it's going to go. Yeah? Even the most powerful men in the world die. You know, I don't think they realise that, most of them. They actually die. And so all the power that accrued to them is gone. We in our lives accrue lots of possessions. They will not follow over with us into whatever rebirth, if there is such a thing, that might follow. That is the end of that. Death is the end of all of our attachments. So better, as the phrase Rilke uses in one of his poems, again I'm referring to Rilke I quoted to you from last night, you know, be ahead of all your partings. That is the same way to live, to be ahead of all your partings. Okay, I'll finish there, I think. Okay, we well, should know the routine by now. <laughs> Any comments or questions or thoughts? Yeah, either about what's being said tonight or what we said in 
Yeah, the other night? Okay, go ahead. It's just about um, about Buddhism in general. Like, um, for some now being on this retreat, it feels like rediscovering um, the path and reconnecting. It's almost like, you know, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's a very nice um, experience. Um, but at the same time, I get this sense that I can't deal with the fact that I've that I'm encountering so many other teachings and theories and practices and I feel the, the urge in my mind to to just hold this one up and to say this is the this is the only way and this is um so it's so it's very strange you that um I'm, I'm almost becoming a very sword, you know, like something to fight with like or racism. It mm-hmm. would um you know that it's you know, on the other hand, I hear this um, saying in my mind, you know, a good Buddhist is free from Buddhism, you know, so it's, it's a complete paradox. Yeah, that's kind of the end of the journey, you know. <laughs> I mean, in a way, in a way, I understand what you mean. Buddhism, I always consider to be an interesting label. Um, I see the teaching as far more than Buddhism. You know, the teaching is that, exactly that. In fact, Buddhism, just to use that term, is an invention of the Western world. You know, when you get into traditional cultures before the 19th century, and even now if you go into traditional cultures, they will not refer to Buddhism. What they will refer to is sasana, the teaching. That is what's important. It's the teaching that's important. The edifice is a human edifice. You know, the teaching, in a sense, is... Well, let's take a paradox again. You pose the paradox as well, which is another paradox, you know. Here is something that doesn't change. All things change. And that is the way things are. That is the Dharma. This is why they use the term Dharma. This is the way things are. So the teaching really is just an extrapolation of the way things are. It's not meant to be a view. And it's meant to be empirically verifiable. So in other words, it's not like metaphysical views which are often handed out and said, believe in this and everything will be okay. The Buddha is saying, practice this and you might see this. Because this is actually empirically verifiable. So if we have the notion of faith, which actually is not a word which really occurs in Buddhism, although you see it translated as such, what we have is the term trust and confidence. And it's trust and confidence, actually, in the teachings, on trust and confidence on already founded on something already understood, already seen. So if you take the term dukkha, you know, dukkha is not something to be believed in, is it? It's either there or it isn't. You, know, you either see it or you don't. It's either present in your life or it's not. And therefore, if your starting point is dukkha, which is what the Buddha is saying, then it's not based on faith. It's based on understanding, albeit something small about your life, that something is unsatisfactory or might even be big in your life. And everything, in a sense, follows from that, that investigation, which is why, actually, I've been using the term investigation. I see Buddhism much more as a way of investigating. It's not about taking. The, theory, the so-called theories are not really theories when you actually look at them. It's the Buddha investigating what it means to be human, what it means to have a mind. And that's generally how, personally, I see it, anyway. And so it's not really in competition with other religious teachings and that's not really in competition with it you know, because they're, in a sense they're doing their own thing you know, 
the Buddha is, is saying, look, if you want all the metaphysical stuff, then go to other teachers. But if you really, really want to overcome dukkha, then this is a way, it's a very practical way of dealing with it. Now, the edifice of Buddhism grew up over thousands of years. Yeah. Over thousands, and people get very attached to it. That's the big problem. But it's the teaching that really should guide one's life. Um, but in terms of an investigation, not in terms of, oh yes, I believe in dependent origination. <laughs> or something like that. I mean, I don't know if this makes sense. But yes, I think, I think in the Western world we have access to all kinds of stuff, don't we? You know, you know, we hear all sorts of teachings from all different traditions, and that's one of the benefits and one of the downsides of living in the Western world. We hear it from Hinduism, we hear it from Christianity, we hear it from Judaism, Islam. And then we hear all bits and pieces, and sometimes we can meld them all together and think we've got something which is working. Um, but you know, the question is, and I think I'm not saying I'm not discounting it. The question you always have to ask yourself: if you're involved in that and trying to put different areas of teachings together in some way, are they coherent? Is there a coherent way? The one thing I don't know if you've noticed about the Buddhist teachings is that they are presented in a very coherent, rational fashion. You know, he's, he's, play, he's laying them out. One step leads to the next step, which leads to the next step. Now, if you begin to see one and experience one, then you can hopefully begin to experience the next bit as well. So it's very coherently laid out. And the question we have to ask ourselves, whenever we put something together for ourselves, might be a conglomeration of teachings from various traditions. I mean, one of the big ones I often see, particularly in this region around here, is Advaita. Advaita Vedanta. Um, Advaita Vedanta. How easily does it sit? Personally, I don't think it sits very easily with Buddhism, but in Buddhist practice. Because they're aiming at slightly different things. But, you know, there's a question you have to ask yourself if you're, if you're using that kind of thing. I'm not saying you are, but if you are kind of using that sort of thing. Response again. Yeah, of course you um, When you're talking about authentic relationship and uh, about uh, using the other person as a mirror, how do you really know when that's happening? Because sometimes you really might think you're not doing that, but you are. It's quite a tricky area, I think, quite slippery, or thin line. And also, if you're just sort of suggesting that we Well, this is why this is why the quality of attention that I've been emphasising so much. This is why the quality of attention that I've been emphasising so much tonight is important. That you actually begin to understand your own processes um, by being attentive to them. In a lot of instances, we will know when we're expecting the other to be a mirror for us and be in an, in an authentic relationship. We can see it. I mean, you can see it, for example, when somebody doesn't do something you want them to do, or they're not actually reflecting back the comments that you would like about yourself. Um, these are very apparent ones, and then there's the much more subtle ones, the kind of subtle ideas of wanting them to mirror security for you, and all the much more subtle elements 
which are within our relationships. And you have to really, I mean, there's no other word, you have to be attentive to what's going on. Some of them we will discern and others we won't. We're not awakened at this stage, so you know, there are going to be a lot of blind spots. But at least being attentive to that could possibly be the process that's going on in our inauthentic relationships. You'd be, I think you, in a way, the problem is, is putting these things into words, because sometimes you just know <laughs> what's going on. I don't know if you ever feel that. I mean, I do. Often, outside of the words, I just know when I'm kind of doing this, engaging in it when it's actually happening, or when, for example, that it is what I call a free relationship, when there's no expectation that the other is allowed to be by me. I have no kind of call on the other in any other particular way. And I think you begin to feel it. It becomes very much a heartfelt thing after a while. Initially, I think you have to verbalise it almost to yourself and, and become aware of it, but after a while, I think you begin to see the play of it. You can begin to see the play of when you're calling on the other to be something for you and when you're not. Yeah. So it's very, I think it's very subtle. I think it's very subtle. I think, it, you know, like all these things, it's difficult. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. There's no doubt. Well, as I keep emphasising, this is sangsaring. It will creep in <laughs> from time to time. You know, it's, it's, it's going to happen. That's, that's where we are. Yeah, but at least be aware that that is that possibility. Yeah. That's really all you're highlighting. In, in, you know, that's what all I was highlighting in saying that last night. At least to bring some kind of awareness to the fact that we might be engaging in that side of behaviour. <laughs> At the beginning of the sitting, you were alluding to a sense of feeling in the phrases that we're saying, mm-hmm. as opposed to the simple, dry repetition of the phrase, of the phrase, um, I wonder if you'd say a little bit more about the actual um, holding of feeling with the phrase. Because saying today, I was thinking of my my friend, right? May you be safe from harm. Mm-hmm. I can say that with great sincerity. Yeah, absolutely. May you be safe from harm, and 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 and, and yet with the repetition, the over and over it's sometimes difficult to bring that freshness of feeling to the phrase at each time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, what I'm wondering about is in terms of, of effectively practicing metta, maybe that's a false concept right there, but mm-hmm. in terms of the, the, the real thrust and usefulness of the practice, uh, to bring feeling to what one is saying at each repetition, I'm finding difficult. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a number of ways of overcoming that. I mean, the first, I mean, I've actually suggested this today. One of the first ways, really, of overcoming it is to not necessarily you'll see yourself as repeating it in a way to kind of listen to it much more. In other words, taking a slightly different position because there's the idea often that I'm repeating it. I'm repeating this phrase, you know, may you be filled with loving kindness or whatever the phrase is. And you're going, may you be filled with loving kindness, may you be filled. And actually then to listen to that phrase, perhaps to stop, and see the, hear the resonances of that phrase. What are the resonances? What's there? What's the after? You know, like the echo, almost, of that phrase when you say it. And in a way, if you pick up on the echo, sometimes you pick up on the genuine feelings that are around. And sometimes they're not, you know, kind of simple. They're sometimes equivocal. There's often other things going on besides what the phrase is saying. 
You know, so I'm saying, in a way, try and place yourself in a slightly different position to it, so that you become the listener rather than the repeater of it. Like you would listen to a cadence in music, and you can often hear repetition in music, it doesn't become boring. You know, actually, you get a tremendous amount of repeats in music, which is with subtle variations. And I think you know, if you begin to listen to it, you'll hear subtle variations. Variations in stress, in the way you say it, variations in rhythm, and all sort of kind of musical... I mean, language is music. It is music, in a way. And in the, in the same way as music has a kind of emotional quality to it that you can't, in a sense, get to words, you still feel it. And it's those feelings that then become important. So it's a stepping really uh, farther outside of the language rather than saying may you be safe from harm and thinking about the idea of being safe from harm as one wouldn't want to see a baby fall down and get uh, get injured um, you're suggesting that may you be safe from harm becomes something that you are as it were hearing for the first time each time yeah. and that there's a just a softening to the actual sentiment without needing to recreate the the same feeling each time. Yeah. yeah. I think it's very much, I think it's very well put, actually, the way you put it, is that it is actually softening to it. It is, you might have to go through that mechanical repetition initially, you know, and, and kind of, what does harm mean? Okay, I can think of the various dangers that somebody could be in this particular friend or you know, the neutral person that we're going to do tomorrow, for example... Um, but then it's going beyond that. It's going to a deeper level of it, of beginning to hear it and having the resonances that it has. It's, again, this is all very difficult to put into words because we're dealing with the intangible. Yeah. But it's placing ourselves into a different position, placing ourselves into the position of the receiver, not just the giver of it. So it's not just giving loving kindness, but it's also receiving it in the giving of it. It's a gift, but the gift comes back to the recipient. (laughs) It's a movement. It's not one thing. It's not because we are interlocked. If you really begin to see that, then you're beginning, in a sense, to unlock that interdependence that we have. in, In caring for other, you're caring for self as well, but not in a selfish way. Yeah, Grace. I've just been doing the one retreat here, and I did quite a lot of work with Meta, mm-hmm. and one of the most incredible things that happened was when doing Meta for people who have seen no enemies, but sometimes enemies, part of the parts of me have been transformed. People who I had a dark hold myself in relation to um, have opened up for me the black holes without me and I see the past it's like the, the past has changed people say you can't change the past you can't change the past you can change how you see it yes. and yes. how you hide it yes. so people who in my mind were enemies became people who actually were actually benefactors yeah. um, Yes. Um, and, and you don't do it for yourself. Mm. But it, it's this incredible paradox. It, the 
Yes. I think that's a beautiful way of putting it. It is, it is a healing. It is a healing because it's healing the wounds that often we feel, particularly in relation, as you say, to people who you have enmity towards. You know, and you find actually that you often, and I don't want to be cliched about this, but you often have learned so much from that experience, so much in what you're saying to be very grateful for in that experience. You know, you've changed because of it. And then the way going through the process is healing yourself, healing those wounds. And they are wounds of the psyche, which we can carry around for a tremendously long period of time you know, if we don't engage in something like metta practice. And you also see the humanity of that person. Yes. Like, for example, a teacher who knows very small was very cruel. But I can never see her as a mother, but at that time I can see that she was young, she was inexperienced, and that there was a lot happening for her and her compassion mm. for that very troubled young woman. And I think that comes about, I mean, coming back to what we've been doing so far over this week, comes back to understanding your own human fallibility, that you too are engaging in unwholesome acts, often unwittingly, not with malice or forethought or anything like that, but often unwittingly we go through life hurting people, and we don't necessarily intend to. You know, it can be the, the, the cruel look or the harsh gesture or something dismissive that we do. Um, and others are doing it as well. And we say, suddenly say, oh, they really don't like me, they've hurt me. Yes. And you begin to soften all that process. If you begin to accept your own fallibility, you can learn to accept and perhaps even love the other's fallibility. Yes, I do. I mean, I, yes, obviously there are people that can really damage you and harm you and, and you can still, in a sense, have meta for them but remove yourself from them. I mean, it's what I call the difference. I mean, we, there's a distinction often made, I think, between, say, compassion and love and idiot love and idiot compassion. You know, an idiot compassion is kind of opening yourself up to harm when you can actually place yourself outside of harm but still continue to hold that person in a compassionate feeling and hold that person in love, you know, in a friendly feeling, say the meta feeling. Yeah. So it's actually knowing, having the wisdom, this is where the insight comes in as well, because it's not just blind. It has to have insight involved with it as well, to know when it's appropriate to remove yourself and know when it's appropriate to be there you know, with another who might do you harm. Yeah, the Buddha, again, has no hesitation in saying, sometimes you get to just remove yourself. Yeah, if, you're, if you're with company which leads you into destructive ways, it says this particularly in the Sigalavada Sutta, you know, which is one of the main suttas about the lay life, 
If you find yourself in people with people and in company that's going to be destructive to you, you might still like them and love them and that, but you should remove yourself from them. Yeah. Because it's going to actually undermine the whole of your practice, the way that you are. Morally, ethically, everything else. Yes. And often that, that's the way it's spoken right through the history of Buddhism. You find people saying, you must remove yourself from certain things. But the point is to remove yourself not out of aversion and fleeing, but out of you know, still holding this person in kind of some wholesome regard, such as metta or compassion or whatever, but still moving away from it. So it's what I call actually sanity. Just knowing when, when to be sane and not to be insane. So it's again bringing insight to our relationships with others. Thoughts or questions? Or? Yes, I've been really struck with impermanence. Mm-hmm. Um, Aren't we all? <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I suppose the attachment. Um, do you have any, from your experience, any wisdom around being in permanence but not having a belief in it? Depends on what form of impermanence. You see, impermanence, I mean, grief, I think, is a natural phenomenon. Buddha doesn't say don't grieve, um, but don't be attached to the grief, because that, too, is impermanence. What, of course, we do is end up being attached to things like grief. We hold on to them. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Again, just kind of a, a brief foray into it, but one of the reasons, perhaps, is if I don't continue to grieve when perhaps somebody has died then I didn't really care. And this showing that I cared is to continue to hold this grief. I think of kind of Queen Victoria with Queen King Albert, you know, with Albert, Prince Albert, for all those years, you know, dressing in black and you know, constantly talking about him and referring to him and everything else. You know, it was like holding on and concretizing, reifying the grief. Yeah. Now there's a healthy way to grieve. It doesn't mean forgetting the person or anything like that. It doesn't mean dropping them out of your consciousness, but it means you go through the grieving process and don't be attached to that form of grieving. Let it mutate, let it move, let it change, because it will. It's only ours which will solidify and make it something much more solid. I mean, I saw this very strongly. I mean, in Buddhist societies, obviously people grieve. It's a natural human phenomenon, absolutely psychologically necessary as well. And... um, when I was at the monastery where I lived in South India, we used to have secretaries to the monastery, both men, um, one lay and one monastic. And the lay secretary had a young child who died. And um, they took her, him and his wife, took the uh, child down and cremated it by the river and did the whole process themselves. And, that, and they grieved tremendously. But after about a month or so, you could see everything coming out of it. There's no letting go. They went through the grieving process. It was obviously a very hands-on grieving process as well, you know, doing the whole thing themselves. But they came out of it. They hadn't forgotten the child. They still referred to the child. You know, it wasn't that. It wasn't holding on to it. It wasn't concretizing. It wasn't making it something solid. You know, 
I learnt a lot from that, that, that there are ways of grieving which are not destructive. A lot of grief is destructive. It's a wound again, which we can carry around with us. Then there's the actual other forms of impermanence, which I think you know, we pay lip service to a lot of the time. I mean, I always say, it's my classic phrase almost, impermanence is really easy to understand, but impossible to live. <laughs> you know, we all say, oh yeah, everything is impermanent, yeah, including me. You know, I talked a little bit about you know, how we evade that one, you know, but everything is impermanent. My pen's broken. <laughs> Yeah. somebody's taken my whatever it is, you know and we get really upset about these trivial things and that's the, I think a real challenge, it's, a, it's almost as big a challenge as learning to cope with the tragedies of life which, which are naturally going to occur anyway you know, we're going to lose loved ones we're going to lose those who are close to us um, just through, through living as we go through accidents and natural deaths and everything but also there's this other big factor, which is what I call the, um, the impermanence of the little things around us that we don't quite get. You know, actually pens are impermanent as well as human beings. <laughs> or whatever it is. I'm giving you a really silly example. But, but those are the things that often are the irritations in life, aren't they? You know? um, actually, Henry James had a wonderful word for it. Not Henry James, M.R. Um, James, one of the writers of ghost stories. He used to call it the malice of, uh, malice of inanimate objects. <laughs> you know, they didn't do what you wanted them to do, <laughs> you know, in other words. You know, because they kind of upset you all the time by not being there or you know, working for you. Yeah. How upset people... I always get this vision of Basil Forty thrashing the car when the car doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. yeah. In, uh, in that particular series. But it, it's that which I think is really difficult for us to get in the minutiae of ordinary daily life. To know that things are impermanent, to be able to let them go. And not to get upset about them. But we do. We get upset so easily, don't we? Yeah, we kind of drop into this uh, moaning again <laughs> because of the impermanence of things. Yeah. Yet it's been a universal theme for so long. I mean, even Greek philosophers, the very early Greek philosophers, you know, Heraclitus came up with that. It wasn't just the Buddha. Everything is impermanent. He, had, you know, he said his particular example was you never step into the same river twice. You know, a student of his said, well, you never step into the same river once, do you, Heraclitus? Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> yeah. everything is moving. Everything is changing. It's how to move with that flow and with that flux and with that change. You know, to be, in a way, part of that evanescence and to live that evanescence of life. And we tend to think that's a kind of sad thing. And it isn't. It's actually a beauty to do it. If you think of the epitome, the absolutely epitome of aesthetics in Japanese culture, the epitome is cherry blossom. That is the highest piece of, you know, of aesthetics that you have in Japanese culture is a cherry blossom because it is so beautiful yet it is so short lived yeah. it drops very quickly and do we say well it's not worth anything so often that's our attitude if something is impermanent well it's not really worth anything well actually in this case not I mean even within our culture we really appreciate the beauty of blossom don't we 
You know, but the Japanese really make an art out of it, the appreciation of this form of blossom, because it is so fleeting. And its meaning is in, in its fleetingness. And the meaning in our lives is in our fleetingness as well. Too. It's a very beautiful thought, I think, this idea of you know, that we are so fleeting, that everything is so fleeting, yet it is so full of meaning in that brief span. You know, Japanese culture is full of these things. I'm trying to point out this, this beauty of change, you know, of what change brings about. I mean, again, I've quoted it many, many times, but I do love it. It's a, it's a haiku, a little haiku by Basho. When he says, Come to the fire, my friend, and see something startlingly beautiful, a ball of snow. In other words, it's going to melt, isn't it? It's just going to fall apart. Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.